a seat. Amen. Golly. It does my heart good to declare those truths with you all on Sundays. Uh, my name is Jonathan. I'm the senior pastor here at Pulpit Rock. And uh, if you've been with us this summer, you know we just wrapped up a series, our Table Manor series. That's over. And we've talked a few times about how in September we're going to launch this new series. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Mark. And there's going to be a lot of great opportunities to dive into the scriptures. There's a companion resource and just we've got a lot of fun stuff planned for that. But that left us with three weeks here in August where we didn't totally know what to do with. So I started thinking about it, praying about it, and I, I felt like God led me to a book that we haven't been in in a while. It is the book of Acts. You can find your way there if you'd like to. Um, I thought we'd look at the beginnings of this movement that we find ourselves in called church. And specifically, I wanted to look at a quality that these early believers had that really is surprising considering their circumstances. And what's even more surprising than that is it is a quality that doesn't really begin to manifest itself until Jesus ascends up into heaven. So it's after Jesus left that we really start to see this quality in them. And we're calling the series Fearless Acts, How Following Jesus Makes You Brave. That is the quality that we see in these early believers. They were incredibly brave in the face of their world and uh, I think there's a lot we can learn from them. Let me start, though, by introducing you to someone. Um, here's a picture. That's me on the left. Um, now, I, the people in the sound booth were making fun of me. I am not wearing the same shirt. It just happens that I have a lot of shirts that look similar, and so uh, that's me. You know it's me because I dress similarly. Um, but the guy on the right is a friend of mine. He is Ethiopian. Uh, he uh, is the evangelist at our partner church that we've been working with for years over in Ethiopia called Leku Keda, and they call him Methuselah. That's not his real name. That is his nickname, and uh, the translator related it to me this way. They call him that because he keeps finding himself in dangerous situations, but he just won't die. <laughs> I thought maybe that something was lost in translation, but uh, that, that's why they call him that. Methuselah, you know, is the guy in the Bible who lived to be over 900 years old. So that's, that's what they say. This guy is incredibly brave, and he's always doing brave things. For example, you may remember, I've talked about this before, but one of the kids in the program that we work with over there uh, comes from a village where that village practices infanticide. And he learned about this and paid his way to get on a bus, travel two days journey through very bumpy roads to go to this village where he knew no one to preach the gospel to them and to call on them to cease from the killing of children. That's just who he is. He's like, let's get on a bus, let's go. One of my favorite stories of this guy's bravery just happened last fall. Um, recently, there was some ethnic violence in his community, and there was a mob of people who in this area had, uh, for a few days, had stirred up some riots. And for political reasons, they were trying to create racial tensions between two ethnic groups that lived in this area of Ethiopia. So this mob, it was a serious deal. They killed some people. They destroyed some homes. It was a, a very challenging thing for about half of a week in his community. Now, the mob found out that Methuselah here, who is not from their ethnic group, was married to a woman who is from their ethnic group. And that infuriated them. And in anger, they tracked down where he lived, and they went to his house, and this mob surrounds his house and demands that his wife hand him over. 
Now, he's in the house, and he's hiding, and he's praying, and she's praying, but she's also trying to reason with this mob. Uh, she's telling him he's not here, and they leave, and then they come back, and they say, we know he's here. Send him out. Now, this went on for a while, and uh, rumor of this got to our church, our partner church over there, and some teenage boys at our partner church, some incredibly brave young men, they decided that they were going to try to rescue Methuselah. So what they did is they dressed up in kind of the garb of the mob, and they happened to be of that particular ethnic group. They dressed up like that, and they go to Methuselah's house, and they say, we're going to go in and get this guy, and we're going to take him, we're going to beat him, we're going to do whatever they had planned. Um, and so the mob lets these teenagers go into his house, but they know each other, and so they put a jacket over his head, and they escort him out through this mob to safety. And he hides for the rest of the riots until the police come in and break it up. Isn't that an amazing story? Like, if you want to know what the book of Acts is like, there's a lot of stuff like that in the book of Acts. And you read it and you're like, holy cow, what, what must have been amazing to be a part of it. This guy is living it. Now, as brave as that story is, you want to know what the bravest part of the story is? I sat in a small little Sunday school room with dirt walls listening to Methuselah explain to me the importance of forgiving his attackers. He and his wife and the other elders at this church are leading their community to try to forgive these men who sought to do them harm and who did them harm. Now that's real bravery, right? I mean, it's brave to rescue your friend from an angry mob, but it is supernatural, next-level, God-ordained, Holy Spirit-inspired bravery to forgive those who do violence against you. That is what following Jesus can create in us. That is the sort of life that we have been invited into. That is the sort of believer that I want to be. I mean, I look at this guy. He is a hero. And I think we all long for that sort of fearlessness in the face of what we face in our world. You know what's true? Um, I see some of that spirit here in this church here in Pulpit Rock Church. This is one of my favorite qualities of this place. We always say, hey, we're a little bit different. We're intentionally different. I think one of the ways that we are a little bit different at Pulpit Rock is we tend to be a little bit brave. We tend to lean into things that may be a little bit intimidating. And I love that about us. And when I look at the church in America, like just globally, what we're, how we're doing in this country, I actually think bravery is something that's sorely lacking for a lot of believers. Christians are known for a lot of things in this country. You'd have to get pretty far down that list before someone would say, oh, those people are brave. It's not really something we're known for. Here's what I wonder. I wonder if God has not wired us as a congregation to be brave and to lean into that quality even more and more in coming years so that we can encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to have a brave sort of faith. I think it's needed in our country. I think um, it's needed for us as American Christians to recapture some of the bravery that we had in the beginning, some of the bravery that we see in our brother Methuselah there. I don't want to pick on us, but let me illustrate. I meet a guy like Methuselah, and I'm blown away. Like, this guy is doing it right. However he's following Jesus, he is doing it right. And then I fly back to our country where Christians are filled with fear and anger. 
because of these two words. I know this is a dated example, um, but do you all remember the war on Christmas? I, th I may still be going, I don't know, I haven't followed it lately. Um, but there were a significant number of Christians, I'm told, who felt persecuted by this phrase, happy holidays. And maybe they still do, I'm not trying to pick an argument. I just, I want us to be a little bit reflective about who we are and our place in our culture, okay? We Christians, we tend to have issues like this that crop up from time to time, don't we? I bet if we brainstormed, we could come up with 20 issues that we got fired up about and we got really upset about. Now, th this is just an observation. This is just my opinion. You can dismiss it, but I think this is really true. There is a way of following Jesus that makes you brave enough to love your enemies and forgive those who physically attack you. And there's a way of following Jesus that makes you fearful and outraged about how people greet you in December. Now, I know uh, that is super harsh, and I, I, like, I really, hear me, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, I want us to be thoughtful, and if this is your issue, like if you're all about the war on Christmas, just, I'll, I'll just confess to you, I don't totally understand it, but I want to learn, so email me, we'll sit down, we'll have coffee, I want to hear from you on this, um, because I'm, I just don't totally understand it, but this is my point. If I have a choice, I choose that first sentence, right? And I bet you do too. If we have a choice, that's who we are called to be. That's what we are invited into. And I worry sometimes that as Christians in this country, we've allowed outrage to replace bravery. Those aren't the same, right? But occasionally I see people like Methuselah who inspire me, who challenge me, and they don't respond to things with fear and anger that I would get afraid of and I would be angry about but they follow Jesus in such a way that they are leaning into their community with peace and with bravery. I think that's one of our strengths as a church, and I think God really wants us to lean into that strength in these upcoming years. And so you look at Acts, you see it in those followers. What I'm hoping we'll do over these next three weeks is just get a vision for that from them. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. You know how the New Testament is laid out? There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, there's John. Those are primarily the story of Jesus. After those four Gospels comes Acts. The book of Acts is the story of his followers immediately after he left. Now, we read at the end of the Gospels, like you can read in John 20, that the disciples are not particularly brave at that point. In fact, John tells us that they were hiding out in a room with a locked door because they were so fearful of the other religious people of the day, right? So this is not a brave look for the disciples. Jesus, he appears inside of that room, like just suddenly, we don't know, miraculously appears, the risen Jesus, and he does something interesting. He says some words to them, but then he breathes on them, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's this promise that something is going to happen. And this is a promise that if you look through the Gospels, Jesus repeats again and again and again, the Holy Spirit is going to come, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And so the, Gospel, or the book of Acts starts with his followers, these same people, standing on a hill, and Jesus is about to ascend up into heaven, and he gives them one last instruction. He says, go back to Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit. And so that's what they do. And they go back to Jerusalem and they're kind of still a little nervous and it seems like they still are just kind of hanging together, trying safety in numbers sort of thing. 
And we don't really get any sense of bravery out of these Jesus followers until Acts chapter 2, when the promise of this Holy Spirit is finally fulfilled. That's where we get our first clue about what makes us brave. Look at verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There's a lot of imagery there that's really cool. That wind, maybe it recalls the breath of Jesus that they felt in that locked room, right? The fire, you recognize fire frequently uh, is a symbol of God's presence. Think about that pillar of fire that the Israelites followed in Exodus, except in this case, notice there's a difference. It's not a pillar of fire, but the fire actually rests on each of the believers. Think about that contrast. The pillar of fire was like this place that you'd go and you were supposed to follow follow it because that was the presence of God. You wanted to stay close to his presence. Everyone could see the presence of God if you were there in that location. That was their understanding as Jews of how the presence of God worked. It was something that you went to. It was a location. But think about this. When the Holy Spirit comes, it's the opposite. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't just descend and there's like a fire in the middle of the room. But no, it actually goes to where each individual person is sitting in the room. It, it was mind-boggling in a way that they never could have imagined or expected when the Holy Spirit comes. And you see instantly it has an impact on the world around them. The Holy Spirit leads them out. Look at verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in, in our own native language? Skip down to verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, said they've had too much wine. I love that response. They say, listen, either something really amazing is happening or someone's drunk. It's one of those things. We're not sure. Let's just see how it plays out. Now, remember John 20, in a room, locked room, scared of the people around him. Look at the difference it makes in God's people here. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. So not only is he speaking up this time, I mean, he is confident. He's like, pay attention to what I'm about to say right now. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Um, I love Peter, and I like to picture that, like, in his notes, he didn't have notes, but in his notes, he had a little in parentheses right there, pause for laughter. Um, I just, he continues, and this is probably the important part he wanted them to really pay attention to. Verse 16. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. 
I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he explains, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that line. See a slight departure from Peter here, from the Peter that we knew who denied Jesus, who's locking himself in a room. Suddenly he's brave and he doesn't hold back. Listen to how he ends this sermon. Verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a pretty big shift, right? From John 20 to this. I mean, he's speaking to some of the same people who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. But instead of like reacting to them, instead of being fearful and angry with them, instead of trying to protect himself from him, he is bravely and even kindly sharing with these people the gospel. He gives them this chance to believe, to repent, to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And something really important to note, sometimes we get confused by this word repent. When he says repent here, he is not saying start obeying. Because if that's what he was saying, then we would be saved through obedience. And we're not. We're saved by grace through faith. He is saying, repent, turn to God, turn and recognize in faith that Jesus is who he says he is. That's what he's saying to them. And he says this, listen, when you do that, the instant you do that, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The thing that we all just got, you will receive that. The Bible teaches when we put faith in Christ, we instantly receive the Holy Spirit. That's God's promise to these people who crucified Jesus, to their children, and he says, to those who were far off, which I like because that's us, right? The Bible teaches this, that the instant we trust Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which is just a fancy way of saying this, that the God of the universe comes and lives inside of us when we put faith in Jesus. This is what Jesus said again and again and again through the Gospels. He gave them this promise. It's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is what Jesus said. And it's, it was right. It, like that, it was for their good. The coming of the Holy Spirit. That was the moment that for the church changed everything. 
In our day, we may not connect to this as deeply. It may not be as inspiring to us, but for the Jewish people, this concept of the presence of God, it was the paramount thing. It was what mattered most. If God was present with his people, then everything went well for them. And if God was not present for his people, then things began to fall apart. And so this idea that the Most High God would permanently live in every person, it was mind-boggling. I mean, it was as if that was the moment God was like unleashed on us. And that presence was suddenly available, not just to certain people, not just to a prophet, not just to the Son of God, but to every person who has faith. That's why the fire rested on every head. I mean, it surely could have been that the fire just sat in the room and God said, hey, I'm with you. That's not how he did it. He sent it above every single person because each person, not just Peter, but each person got a full measure of the Holy Spirit and so do we when we believe. That is the moment that God became really personal to all of us. One thing to note about this, it was Jesus who said, that gift is permanent. It's irrevocable. It is permanent for all who believe. It is forever. Now, it, it may not impact us like it impacted them, but when those early believers realized what had happened, when they realized that God was now dwelling in them, they were the dwelling place of the Most High God, do you know what was suddenly not as present in them? Fear. You know what was suddenly not as present in them? Anger and outrage. Those things drained away and suddenly they had a peace and a confidence and a bravery because God is with us and God is in us. Why was the early church so fearless in their world, it's, uh, one easy answer is the Holy Spirit. The early church, they were a spirit-led people. That's what made them brave. And I want to encourage us in the same way. The gift of the Holy Spirit makes us brave if we walk with Him. The gift of the Holy Spirit makes us brave if we walk with Him. It is the Holy Spirit and only the Holy Spirit that empowers us to rise above this like stupid contentiousness and constant outrage that everyone in our culture seems to be having right now. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to rise above that and to engage in our community with bravery and kindness like Peter did, like my friend Methuselah does. Now, notice I put an if in that sentence because the Bible is really clear on this. It always differentiates between being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit. Those are two different things. Every believer is indwelt, but walking by the Spirit is a way of life that we have to embrace. It doesn't just happen. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. The early church, not only did they have the, the Holy Spirit, but they walked with the Spirit every step of the way. And the bravery that that produced changed the world forever. That's why I see with my friend Methuselah. It's not like he was just born brave. Like, I don't think that's true. He's embraced the presence of God in his life, and he's walked with it for years so that even in the face of violence, he has a bravery. 
That's what we mean when we talk about journeying with God here. We talk a lot about helping people journey with God. That's all we're trying to say at its core is just that, is that we recognize that God lives in us when we put faith in him and we want to walk with him and journey with him as much as possible in this life. He's given us his presence. The Holy Spirit is in us. We want to learn to embrace that. That's what makes us brave. Now, let me give you like the most important thing when it comes to walking with the Spirit. In fact, if you have a Bible, turn to Galatians 5, because I want you to circle this, star it, write, this is really important. It's Galatians 5, and it starts in verse 16. Paul is going to hit us with what he thinks is maybe the most important thing when it comes to walking with the Spirit. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Now, what he's saying here is really simple, but it is incredibly important. He's saying this, that God's presence in your life is going to feel counterintuitive. If you hear nothing else, please hear this, that the Holy Spirit is going to lead you in ways that will be in conflict with what feels natural to you. There's going to be some conflict if you walk with the Spirit. We will never be able to walk with the Spirit unless we understand this. He is going to take us someplace that you and I would not naturally of our own accord go. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate that. Um, my wife and I, we recently got to get away to a, a mountain town up, uh, in, well, here in Colorado, and we got to go paddle boarding on a mountain lake. Have you ever paddle boarded? It's like these big surfboards, you stand on them, you have a giant paddle, and you paddle board. You all should go paddle boarding. It's an amazing thing. My wife, she does a headstand on her paddle board because she's just cool like that. Um, I only fell in once, so it was a big win for both of us. <laughs> that day. Um, she's got much better balance than I do. Um, so we're paddleboarding on this lake, and we see this area where a mountain stream is beautiful, comes down and empties into the lake. So we paddle over there, and we're like, we should try to go up this stream. This is going to be so much fun. And we start paddling, and we get into the current of the stream, and what did we discover? Like, it was really hard. It's way harder to paddle up a stream than it is to paddle across a calm lake. So we had to really dig in, and after a while, we decided, you know, this is not for us. We're on vacation here. So we turned around, and we headed downstream. And what did we discover? It's incredibly easy to go downstream on a paddleboard. You hardly even have to paddle. You just have to make sure you don't hit the sides of the stream. Um, now, I know that I'm not talking about, like, earth-shattering physics here, but allow me to connect this to what Paul is saying. Some activities, some attitudes, some behaviors, some ways of thinking, they are downstream for us. And what that means is there is no real conflict. You just fall into them and away you go. Fear, anger, outrage, those are downstream emotions. No one has ever said, gosh, I just need to get angrier. Let me work on that. You know, you just, you just feel it. Those are downstream. Other activities attitudes, other behaviors, other ways of thinking, they are upstream activities, meaning you have to intentionally participate in them. 
You have to opt in. You have to be intentional. Like they don't just happen. No one accidentally paddles up a stream, right? It's impossible. You have to focus on it and you have to make sure you do it. Forgiving people who attack you, that is an upstream activity, isn't it? That's not how any of us would naturally respond. Boldly and kindly proclaiming Christ to the same people who crucified him, that was an upstream activity for Peter. That's not how he naturally responded. We saw how he naturally responded. This is what Paul is saying about walking with the Spirit. He says it's in conflict with what feels natural. It is an upstream activity. It is going to come into conflict with some of the things that we naturally want and some of the ways that we will naturally feel, naturally behave, the attitudes we will hold, and the ways of thinking that we will have. Think about us in this country as Christians. Think about the last 50 years. In the last 50 years, I, I would say that we've probably had like the best Christian music, the best Christian programs, the best Christian teaching and preaching in the church that anyone has ever had in the history of the world. I mean, we have really perfected this thing. I mean, we had fog machines and, you know, sound systems. We, we have it all, right? And yet, just casual observation, it, it seems to me that we are more fearful and angry than ever before as a group. I know we have the spirit, but I just, I worry for us sometimes that things have been so well, or have, have gone so good for us in this country that we have just gotten into this habit of going downstream and just expecting it to happen. And maybe we've forgotten what Paul is telling us. There is a conflict there. The spirit is leading us in a different direction and what we just naturally feel or naturally think or naturally do is not necessarily the way the Spirit wants to lead us. And unless we cultivate an upstream sort of life, we're never going to manifest the sort of spiritual bravery that Peter does or that Methuselah does. Listen, when I say I see a lot of bravery here at Pulpit Rock, this is what I mean. I see us lean into things that other churches maybe would avoid. And make no mistake, it is like it's not because we're cooler than other churches, right? I'm, I mean... Let's be honest. We're, you know, we're moderately cool. Um, it's not because like we're edgier than other churches and we're trying to be edgy. That's no. It, listen, it is one reason. Day in, day out, we are seeking to walk with the Spirit of God that we have been given. That is the thing that makes us brave. That has to be the foundation to everything we do, this listening to God and obediently going where he leads. Spiritual bravery, it is not about acting brave. That's not what this is about. That's not what our world needs is more people who are acting brave. Spiritual bravery means walking with the Spirit and cultivating an upstream life. That's the only way. Let me close with this. Um, if you have put faith in Jesus, and just think about this, let this sink in for a second. Like the God who created the universe, like the most high God, the God who, who loves all people, who made a way, who's redeeming and restoring all things, lives in you. Like when we say God is here, it's like God's not in this room. God is in you. And when we leave, I don't know, you know God may still be here, but it, he is in you if you believe. 
And if you don't believe, if you haven't put faith in Jesus, listen, let me just encourage you. Talk to somebody here at this church. Listen, Jesus loves you in a way that is pure. He is for you. And he has invited you, not just to check some religious box, but he wants to walk with you present in your life. Talk to someone. It is the greatest adventure and the most worthwhile thing to do while you're on this earth. But if you have faith and the most high God lives in you, I want you to just fast forward in your mind. Think about 24 hours from now. You're going to be living your life doing whatever you do on Monday. What upstream activity could you do to walk with the Holy Spirit? What's something that you could embrace? That is the foundation of everything. It's listening to the Spirit, being shaped by the Spirit, walking with the Spirit. That is something that we cultivate. And the product of that is this bravery. If you're not sure what to do, I'd encourage you to look at that menu. If you're just tired of doing it on your own, I'd encourage you to look at that menu. Like the goal of that is not just to fill up your schedule, but all of that stuff exists because we want to walk with God here at Pulpit Rock. We want to be changed by him and we don't want to do it alone. So we can't do it for you, but we can do it together. Maybe plug into one of those things. Our culture needs believers who are brave, right? Who are not ruled by fear and anger and outrage. I think in our heart of hearts, that's what we want to be. I think in our heart of hearts, that's who God's been making us as a community. The first thing we have to realize is that foundation, foundation of a brave life, it is walking with the Spirit. We have to paddle there together. Now, I could tell you, hey, here's what you should do to walk with the Spirit, but you know what I think would be better today? I want you to engage with the Spirit on this question just for a couple of minutes. He is present with you. Jesus said forever He is present with you. Can we welcome Him here and trust His presence in our life enough to just ask Him that question and expect Him to answer it? Let me pray over us, and I want to give you a minute. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We are shocked and surprised that you would live in us. Help us to never get over that surprise. And we ask that you'd speak to us, Lord. How do we cultivate this life? Holy Spirit, would you speak to each of us in this room in a way that we will know is clearly from you, in a way that we will trust, in a way that we will hear? How can we walk with you, Lord?